This morning we see, Lord, that kings and kingdoms do indeed all pass away. And the reason there's something about your name is because your name is the rock that fills the whole earth and becomes a mountain. It's the, it's the rock that crushes all kingdoms. And God, we just thank you for that revelation that in the end, you win. You are the great king who will fill the whole earth. Holy Spirit, we welcome you. We just ask for ears to hear what your spirit is saying today. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, good morning. This week, I feel like um, I've given a lot out, and, I, and I'm feeling that drain inside of me, and I feel like we've covered a lot. Um, has this been helpful? Okay, good. I'm glad it's been helpful. Um, we've covered the last uh, four days. We've covered more of the pursuit of God after Nebuchadnezzar. We've thrown a lot of prophecy in. We've thrown some, some life lessons in. We've, we've listened to the Holy Spirit. We've looked at Jewish exegesis, um, the method of Peshat, Ramez, Darash, and Sod. And, um, and today... Uh, I, I had this feeling that when we announced that we were doing Daniel, that some of you came to this class because you were interested in prophecy. Is that anybody in this room? Anybody? A few of you? Yeah, I just figured that. And I've been promising you all week that, what's that? Partially. Par partially. Yeah, partially. And, and that's, that's great. I promised you all week we were going to do prophecy on Friday. So I'm just going to call this prophecy morning. And and we're going to fly with about, I would say, about six weeks of teaching this morning. So um, hang on to the armrest and get ready for a roller coaster ride because I've been I've been just like agonizing all day and all night thinking, how can I be efficient enough to get six weeks of teaching into an hour? And I think I've got it. So hang on really, really tight, okay? So we, we're not going to read everything today. I'm going to do a lot of summarizing. And um, if you have your uh, sheets I passed out the first day, um, they'd be helpful. Go to chapter 2 slash 7, and you might want to put your finger on 8 as well. Um, we're going to hit that, and we're going to do that in 30 minutes. And then we're going to go to 9. Um, and we're going we're gonna to give a summary of chapter 9 as well. So... I just couldn't resist it. I just had to do it. So that's what we're going to do. We are going to start with chapter 7. All right. I'm going to read verses 1 through 14. And then we're going to just, we're going to talk about it. Chapter one, 7, verse 1. In the first year of Belshazzar, who was the last king of Babylon, by the way, and he's talked about in chapter 5, um, Daniel had a dream and visions on his head while on his bed. Then he wrote down the dream, telling the main facts. Daniel spoke, saying, I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven. When you talk about the four winds of heaven, that just means like, um, oh, I've drawn a blank. I guess I didn't write it in. Never mind. I don't remember what the four winds of heaven are. <laughs> um, it means like just coming from 
from all from all around. And we're stirring up the great sea, which is the Mediterranean. And four great beasts came up from the sea, each different from the other. When we talk about the sea, there's a symbolism of it comes out of humanity. And you could also talk about it as coming out of the earth is also a symbol of coming out of humanity. So you see when it comes out of the sea, it says it's coming out of humanity. And the first was like a lion and had eagle's wings. I watched till its wings were plucked off and it was lifted up from the earth and made to stand on two feet like a man and a man's heart was given to it. And suddenly another beast, a second like a bear, it was raised up on one side and had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth. And they said thus to it, arise, devour much flesh. After this, I looked and there was another like a leopard, which had on its back four wings of a bird. The beast also had four heads and dominion was given to it. After this, I saw in the night visions and behold, a fourth beast, dreadful and terrible, exceedingly strong. It had huge iron teeth. It was devouring, breaking in pieces and trampling the residue with its feet. It was different from all the other beasts that were before it and it had 10 horns. I was considering the horns and there was another horn, a little one coming up among them before whom three of the first horns were plucked out by the roots. And there in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man and a mouth speaking pompous words. I watched till thrones were put in place and the ancient of days was seated. His garment was white as snow and the hair of his head was like pure wool. His throne was a fiery flame, its wheels a burning fire. A fiery stream issued and came forth from before him. A thousand thousands ministered to him. Ten thousands times ten thousand stood before him. The court was seated and the books were open. And by the way, the books that are open are the book of life and the book of remembrance. And as this morning, he talked about also the book of deeds. And I can give you verses for that if you want them. You can ask me for them later. I watched them because of the sound of the pompous words which the horn was speaking. I watched till the beast was slain, its body destroyed and given to the burning flame. As for the rest of the beasts, they had their dominion taken away, yet their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. I was watching in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man, coming with the clouds of heaven, he came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him. Then to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom, that all peoples, nations, languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom is the one which shall not be destroyed. All right, the second half of the chapter just gives some of the interpretation. I'm going to go through, I'm going to give you a little bit more we know from history, and also the interpretation. All right, so we have four beasts that rise up from humanity. Now, when we look at the book of Daniel, is this working okay? Okay, now when we look at the book of Daniel, the book of Daniel is tied together. And it's talking a lot about the same things in different ways. When I talked to you on Monday, I said chapter 2 and chapter 7 are parallel chapters. Okay? So 2 and 7 are giving a full vision of the Gentile kingdoms that are to rise. Okay? So first we're getting it with Nebuchadnezzar's dream of a statue with the head of gold, the chest and arms of silver, the belly of bronze, and the legs of iron, and the feet of iron and clay, and our ten toes, right? Then in chapter 7, we're getting it as a viewpoint from God, a theological view of it. In other words, God's man's looking at this in the form of Nebuchadnezzar and saying, these are great kingdoms with great value. But God's looking at them and saying the hearts of these kingdoms is actually beastly in nature and demonic in nature. 
So in chapter 7, we see the viewpoint of God as he views these kingdoms. The first one is, um, is, a, is one that looks like a lion, and it has wings, okay? So this lion that has wings with the eagle is, also, is synonymous with the head of gold in chapter 2. So if you want to, if that's confusing, just think of it. The head of gold is the lion with wings. Now the head of the lion with wings represents Babylon, and in particular, Nebuchadnezzar. And we see some clues to what the kingdom is like. First of all, the gold. Nebuchadnezzar was a very, very rich ruler. I don't remember the statistics. I saw them somewhere, but they just had piles and piles of gold. They had a lot of gold, okay? They were a very, very wealthy kingdom. Um, their, god, their, well, their god was Marduk or Bel. It was a god of gold. Um, when, he, when Nebuchadnezzar made a statue himself, he made it out of gold, 60 by 6. Remember the Ramez? It's actually the number of man. It's actually short of God. Now, there's something really cool here. You can look at the picture. These are actually pictures from the archaeological digs of Babylon. Look at what it, look what it looks like. It's a lion with eagle's wings. It's actually a symbol that they would have known. Um, it's a symbol that they actually gave themselves. In Daniel chapter 4, we covered yesterday, and I had to circle this and then I never got back to it because we ran out of time. Um, it says that when Nebuchadnezzar was humbled by God, it says that his hair grew out like the wings of an eagle and his nails like the talons of a bird. Think about what it's saying here. When Nebuchadnezzar is symbolized, he has the wings of an eagle. But look what it says in chapter 7. It says that his wings were plucked off and he was made to stand up like a man and was given the heart of a man. No other description is given to any other ruler like this. Think about what Daniel's influence was on him. He was a man who honored Nebuchadnezzar while still honoring God, and he served him and became one of his chief counselors as a man that was fully committed to God, and because of that, we see the conversion of Nebuchadnezzar, and it's in the symbolism. When his, when his wings are plucked off, it's not only that God plucked them off to humble him, but he also raised them up to be humane. We know from history that at the end of Nebuchadnezzar's rule, that the whole course of the kingdom changed. This is a historical fact that Nebuchadnezzar stopped conquering people and he treated the people humanely. Literally, he was given the heart of a man. Next one is um, the bear that's raised up on one side and has three ribs in its mouth. This is synonymous in chapter two with the chest and the arms of silver. This kingdom represents the Medo-Persian um, uh, uh, empire. All right, and they conquered the, the Babylonians in 539. And this is actually documented in uh, chapter five as well. Remember the, the writing on the wall. Those of you who are familiar with your Bible, um, it was Mene Mene Tikal Parzin. 
Mene, mene is 50 shekels. Tikal is shekel. Yuparzin is the half a shekel. You have been weighed by the by the measure of the shekel, of the, you've, been, you've been weighed on the scale, that's what many, many, and you've been measured by the shekel, and your kingdom has been divided and given to the Medes and Persians. So the Medo-Persian army empire took over Babylon in 539, and there's some symbolism here. Remember we talked about earlier, the two arms, it's a dual monarchy, and also we have the bear that's raised up on one side, showing the dominance of the Persians over the Medes. It also has three ribs in its mouth, representing the two, three empires that it devoured. The first one is Lydia, the second one is Egypt, and the third one is Babylon. So those are the three ribs. In chapter eight, I'm not gonna read chapter eight today, it also gives us another vision that Daniel had and chapter 8 gives us details about the Medo-Persians and the Greeks, okay? And I'm just going to summarize real quickly. Daniel saw a vision of a ram, and it had two horns, one longer than the other. And the ram was defeated by a goat with one horn and that was broken off with four growing up with a small horn coming out of one of the four. Now, just, that's, that's all I'm going to give you for now. The ram is also synonymous with Medo-Persia. So when we think about all the symbolism that's going on, the chest and arms of silver, the bear in chapter 7, and the two-horned ram in chapter 8 are all the same thing. All right? Now chapter 8 gives us a little bit more details about what Medo-Persia would look like. It says that the small horn will actually grow up first, and then the large one will grow up after it, which is actually another symbolism that the Medo, the Median Empire was actually great before the Persians actually took over them, and then they assimilated and became a combined empire. All right, so the, 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 the prophecy details are very, very precise. It also says that they're gonna go from the north, the south, to the west which is the directions they conquered. It actually gives a direction they'll conquer. So the Bible is very, very precise in its details about these kingdoms. All right. Persians Iran today? Yes, they are. Yep, the Medians were also Iranian tribes, but they took over a large empire that went outside of that region. So and to add to that, many of them consider themselves Persian rather than Iranian. That's correct. Uh, most Iranians will call themselves Persians to this day. Yep. And they, they still speak the Persian language, Farsi. Yes. Yep. I understand there's a great Christian movement going there. A lot of the same thing. Yes, there is a great Christian movement. We're going to, I want to talk about that a little bit later, actually, the visions of Christ. I think I put up my notes. Um, we'll, we'll, we'll talk more about that. Remind me if I forget, because sometimes I go, I skip right over things. So, yes, we will. I want to come back to that. The third one, the third beast is the leopard who has four heads and four wings. This leopard is synonymous with the belly and thighs of bronze in chapter two. And it represents the kingdom of Greece. Does anybody remember why the four heads and four wings? Let me know this. Justin's shaking his head yes. 
four generals that rose up after that. that that's right. There's four four generals that raised rose up after that. When Alexander died, remember Alexander the Great took over the kingdom of Greece at the age of 20. And he ruled for 13 years and took over the entire known world 13 years. So when we look at we look at the prophecies of chapter 8, it says that when this goat comes after this ram, which is Persia, the goat is Greece, it says that he actually came across the entire earth without touching the ground and came after Persia with great power and destroyed the kingdom of, of, of Medo-Persia. Now, there's a reason for that. 150 years before this happened, the, the Medo-Persians the, yeah, the Medo actually went into Greece and tried to take it, and they just decimated the cities. And they had a great remembrance that they held a really long grudge. And when Alexander the Great came to power, his number one goal was to destroy them because he hated them so, so much. And um, the history historians, you really like to exaggerate. So some historians exaggerate, some don't. They say Alexander the Great had an army of 35,000 that we went after the Medo-Persians with. And um, it was just a small part of his army. And the Persians, some historians say two and a half million, and some say five million. In three battles, Alexander the Great decimated them, destroyed them. And the way they did it was this. The Medo-Persian army had a strategy in battle. And their strategy was, is that they would always attack in the morning from the east, so the enemy would have to fight with the sun in their eyes. Well, Alexander the Great knew this. And so what he did was he said, okay, we got bronze shields. Everybody get your polishing cloth out and polish them. And so they put their shields out in front of them. And so when you know, when you look at like a mirror and shine the sun, it's blinding. And so they put their shields out and they blinded the Persians again with their own tactic. And so they were able to defeat them that way. So um, it's pretty cool stuff going on here. So Daniel, um, I don't know where I was, so I'm going to talk about that. What was I talking about? Oh, yeah, the four generals. So four generals actually arose out of Alexander's kingdom because after his 13-year rule, he went into a drunken stupor in the rain, and he came back in, got pneumonia, and he died from it because he was so depressed because he had nobody else left to kill. And um, he, uh, as he was dying, they said, Alexander, who's going to take over the kingdom? And he said, to the strongest. And so it sparked years and years of civil war between his four generals, and it broke the kingdom into four parts. So when we see the one horn, the horn particular on the goat is Alexander the Great by name. The four horns are his four generals. I might have them up there. I don't have the names of them. I don't want to try them. So the four horns and the four wings are his four generals. And it says that out of one of those horns, we're talking about chapter 8 now from the goat, there will grow a little horn. All right? Now in chapter 7, it talks about a little horn growing up among the ten horns of the fourth kingdom. Do not confuse them. These are two different horns. All right? So there's two horns that we're talking about. 
chapter seven horn, we're talking specifically about Antichrist. We'll get more to that in, in, shortly. In chapter eight, we're talking about Antiochus the fourth Epiphanes. And if you want to write a side note, this is how this, these books, these chapters tie together. Chapter 11 is all about the Grecian kingdom and the rise of Alexander, or Antiochus IV Epiphanes through a series of leaders. And I have it all outlined on your, on your sheet as well. Is there any questions up to that point? Overwhelming or are we doing okay? Okay, we're doing okay, good. I don't want, I don't want to lose anybody. I'm, I'm trying to go fast, but be clear too, so. So anyway, we have this little horn that's going to arise, and it will be Antiochus IV Epiphanes. Now, I want to kind of kind of tie into my theme earlier in the week about God pursuing the man in this as well, especially in the Grecian kingdom, because we have some knowledge from history of some of let's say supernatural events that happened with some of these leaders. I'd like to share them with you. The first one: when Alexander the Great, after he conquered. Tyre in Lebanon, he went on his way down to Jerusalem. And as, as he was going to Jerusalem, it said, history says is that he had a vision in the night. And his vision was that there were these men coming out of, out of, out of, the, out of the city and they had white robes. And there was another man with them who had a purple robe. And he didn't understand what the vision meant and it really bothered him. When he came close to the city of Jerusalem, the priests of the temple came out in white robes with the high priest in a purple robe following them. And he realized he was seeing exactly the same vision that he had seen in the night. And they carried with him them the book of Daniel. And they showed him the book of Daniel, what the book of Daniel said about him. Alexander the Great, was so impressed by this and so moved that he actually fell to the ground and he gave praise to God. And his men said, why are you bowing before these men? And he said, I am not bowing before these men. I am bowing before their God. Alexander the Great, I believe he had a first step. Unfortunately, he didn't have a Daniel with him to help him along the way. But God was reaching out to him and unfortunately, I, I, you know, we see that he fell away from that. But God was pursuing the man, Alexander the Great, even though he was represented in Scripture by a beast. Just like Nebuchadnezzar, he was pursuing him. And by the way, because of that, he spared Jerusalem. Because of Daniel. And this is like 300 years later. Another example Antiochus IV, Epiphanes, who's going to rise out of this Grecian kingdom, and he's going to be the little horn of chapter 8, and he is going to be the symbol of Antichrist to come. There, is, there has probably been none worse than Antiochus IV in all of history. Even, even Hitler wasn't as bad as Antiochus IV. Antiochus IV was terrible. Uh, some scholars say he's killed about 80,000 Jews in a day by roasting them in skillets, and disemboweling infants, wrapping the entrails around the mothers and pushing them off the city walls. Those are some of the examples of things that history records he did. Um, just did horrible, horrible things. After he had decimated Jews, he was actually going to another part of the kingdom and he heard about the rise of the Maccabeans. 
and the revolt and how it was going. He got so angry that he said, history says that he cursed God and he said, when I return, I will kill more Jews than have ever been killed in all of history. And he swore it on oath to God. It says, history says that his actually, he fell to the ground, his stomach burst open, and he was being eaten alive by worms. Where else do we see that? Remember Herod, right? We see this, and there's actually other accounts in history of this happening as well. And they said his smell coming off him was so bad his men wouldn't even get near him. And it took him a week to die of this. And history says is that Antiochus, and I believe God is after his heart in this, Antiochus cried out to God and he says, God, if you will heal me, I will serve you. And he died. But why did he die? He was trying to make a bet with God. We don't, we don't negotiate with God. We don't, we don't say, you know, like, it's like going to church and saying, you know, I'll come to church and I'll worship you, God, um, if you do this for me. If you, um, let's say, if you heal my cancer, then I'll worship you. Or if, if you um, give me a car, well, then I'll, then I'll come and worship you. God's not in the negotiations. That's not who he is. He's so much greater than that. God is worthy to be praised no matter what the circumstances were. I believe that if Antiochus had actually, he recognized the hand of God, but if he would have recognized the hand of God in his life, acting his life was, a, was actually for his benefit to bring him to praise, I believe he would have been healed. And because God's always in pursuit of the man. Remember how awful Nebuchadnezzar was. And God still pursued him. And Nebuchadnezzar was, was a man that was able to be humbled and brought to the Lord. doesn't matter who the person is, who the leader is, how bad they are. God is always in pursuit of the heart. And history shows us that even these men that were considered beasts in prophecy, God was after their hearts. He was always after their hearts. That is the heart of God. His heart beats for his creation, for, his, for man that have been created in his image. All right, little side sermon. Little Jarash, my son, right? <laughs> All right, we're almost done with seven and eight. One more thing I want to cover on chapter eight. This is a, this is a big prophecy thing, and I think, it's, I think it's just worth touching on. It says in there that when this little horn arises that the, the, the sanctuary is going to be desecrated and that before it's repurified, and I'm just paraphrasing, there's going to be 2,300 mornings and evenings. You guys see that? To the end of chapter 8, somewhere in there. There's going to be 2,300 mornings and evenings. And it's talking specifically about the desecration from this little horn. Now, Antiochus IV, he, he um, began his persecution on September 6, 171 B.C. We know this from history. Okay. December 15th, 168 BC, Antiochus defiled the temple by sacrificing a pig on the altar of God to the, to the god Zeus. And then the priest of God, he actually took the pig meat and shoved it in their mouths and desecrated the temple. On December 25th, 165, the altar was consecrated, the menorah lit. lit. They had enough oil for one day and it burned for eight. What's this, what's this holiday called? Hanukkah. Hanukkah. Very good. 
this is a prophecy that's given 300 years before, or give or take some, before it happened. And it says there'll be 2,300 mornings and evenings. There's two ways to interpret this. There's two schools of thought on it. Some think that it's 1,150 days because of morning and evening sacrifice. 30 minutes. Okay, thank you. We're almost, that's perfect, actually. Thank you. So they, some people think it's 1,150 days because of morning and evening sacrifices. Most will actually will actually interpret it as just 2,300 days. It actually, there's actually some validity to both, I think. Because if you take, I just counted days in, in, 30, in 30 month sequences using the prophetic year. And I was one day off between um, this date and this date from the beginning of the persecution to the reconsecration of the temple. Now my math is terrible. I can't add and subtract in my head for nothing. And so, um, historically speaking, to, to pin a date this accurately back then, I would say it's right on the money, um, just because it's so far away in you know, the way that time's been kept over time. So anyway, I got 2,301 days is what I, was what I came up with between the, when the desecration began to when the, the temple was reconsecrated. So Daniel was actually predicting the whole tribulation of that time. When we look at Daniel chapter 8 and Daniel chapter 11, chapter 11 is like the revelation of the second tribulation. Chapter 11, out of the first tribulation, chapter revelation is like the revelation of the second tribulation that's still yet to come. So um, pretty amazing. The other thing is, is that the, the, con the con desecration of the altar was almost exactly in the center. And so you can look at the 1150, it's not exactly. Um, there, there's some commentators that have adjusted the calendar as far as for between the different systems and they've come up to exactly 1150. I don't understand how they did it because like, like I said, my math, my mind is thinking mathematics at all. But um, it's kind of like revelation is to come is that there's gonna be the seven year tribulation with a desecration in between. This case, it's about six years, give or take some. So, any questions on that? All right. Last beast. We have one that's terrible, and it says it has iron teeth, 10 horns, and it has three that are taken out by one. Now we're talking about Rome, and we're talking and it, we're talking about two segments of Rome. Remember from Daniel chapter two, we have the legs of iron, which represented the kingdom of Rome. In Daniel chapter seven, we have this great and terrible beast also representing Rome, and also a reunified Roman Empire of the future. All right. Now we. We look at this and we can look at it from the time of Christ. And I'm not going to play that video because of time. So I don't need my audio. Um, look at it from the time of Christ. Rome was a nation of iron. And they had they had iron armor. They had iron spears. They had iron swords. And they were much, much more terrible than the other ones. Um, I was going to give you some more history on this, but I'm not going to do that for the sake of time. Um, just give you a couple things. Uh, Germanicus, 
killed tens of thousands of people by himself, one of, one of the generals of Jesus' time. Varus is another one. Tens of thousands of people put like 12 million, I think, in oh, Pompey, put 12 million in slavery, I believe it was. Um, they, uh, Titus, he would go around to villages in Judea and he would have the soldiers um, crucify people in different positions for entertainment. Um, Migdala, remember Mary Magdalene from Migdala? All the people of Migdala were considered, uh, all the women were considered Roman property so that they could be used as sex slaves for the Roman army at any given time. Rome was an awful place. Um, another example Shane Bullard talked about was um, uh, the city of Sepphoris, which is a mile from Nazareth. Um, they, they crucified 2,000 people <coughs> cross to cross all the way from Sepphoris to Nazareth. What they would do is they would employ the local carpenters and if they would build the crosses, they would be exempt from execution. So, you know, you think about like how many crosses did Jesus and Joseph have to build before Jesus was actually put on one. So the Roman Empire was actually much more cruel and much more terrifying than any of the other beasts. Now we know from history that that the but we, we we look at the the prophecy that we have ten toes and we have a, a part of it's going to be weak and part of it's going to be strong. Um, so we're going to have a confederation of Roman states, which we haven't seen yet. And it also set, tells us in chapter seven there's going to be ten horns. Excuse me. And so we're going to have ten kings. We haven't seen that yet either. And it says there's going to be a little horn that rises up, or another ruler that rises up and subdues three. Haven't seen that yet either. So we can look at the rest of this prophecy and say, oh my goodness, look how accurate this is. And we can trust that this is what's coming for the end. And we look at Rome and we say, well, Rome fell in 476, right? Well, not really. And they say, well, actually it fell in 1453 with the fall of Constantinople. Well, yeah, that happened. 476 kind of happened. But as Rome began to fall, it didn't really fall to an empire. You know, you know, say, well, Byzantine was kind of more the Ottomans, but the Western part, not really. It just kind of morphed into something else. And it was still very Roman in nature. And I would say Europe's probably pretty Roman in nature still today. And you look at what's going on in Europe, we see a reunification of the Roman Empire in the European Union. Am I saying this is the European Union? I'm not saying that. I'm saying that the European Union looks a lot like what they're describing. Do we see 10 kings yet? No. Do we see one rising up? Yep, no. But I think it's interesting that when Winston Churchill, yeah, I know where my, and I gotta find the, right? When Winston Churchill um, was prime minister, he said this. He said, um, the creation of an authoritative, all-powerful world order is the ultimate aim toward which we must strive. Unless some effective world super government can be brought quickly into action, the proposals for peace and human progress are dark and doubtful. So even Winston Churchill was a good man, is actually leading and pushing towards the direction of a one world government in Europe. And we still see that today. Look at the outcry against Brexit. I mean, it's like, wait a minute, we're united, we're one. And you look at the nature of it, you have weak and you have strong. You have like the, you have like the Francis that are really, really strong. And then you have 
Um, I'm just drawing blanks right now, the weak ones. <laughs> Belgium. Belgium, yeah, Greece, Greece that are very, very weak. But they're all united by one currency, by an army and all these things. So we see this actually coming into play. All right, so then finally we see a picture of Jesus. It's the same picture we see in Revelation chapter 1, verses 13 through 15. It says that um, we see the Ancient of Days coming. He seated, his garment was white as snow, his hair on his head was like pure wool. His throne was like a fiery flame. His wheels a burning fiery. A fiery stream issued and came forth from before him. A thousand thousands ministered to him. Ten thousands times ten thousands stood before him. The court was seated and the books were open. Again, like in chapter 2, we see the rock that comes and crushes all the kingdoms. We see Jesus in this picture. A picture of Jesus. It's the same picture. Go what Revelation 1, 13-15. Same description. We see him come. And he defeats all these kingdoms of the earth. The message of Daniel and his kingdoms is this. In the end, God will prevail. And Jesus wins. That's the message. Are there any questions on the kingdoms? I know I just covered a whole lot. If not, I'm going to do nine. We got about 30 minutes. And um, this should take about two to three sessions, but we're going to do it in one. Is anybody familiar with the 70 weeks prophecy? And just raise your hands. Uh, anybody, like I have some understanding of it. A few of you do? Okay, good. All right. We're going to start in verses, and I keep, I'm skipping some stuff here just to get through. What I want to do is I want to read uh, verses 1 through 3, and then we're going to skip to verse 20, okay? And not because the rest of that chapter isn't important. It's actually probably one of my favorite parts, just like the rest of Daniel. Um, I'd encourage you to go back and read it. It's Daniel's prayer of repentance. He's he's actually invoking like the Deuteronomy um, covenants of, of um, blessing and curses and all that. It's just a... There's a lot going on there, but just for the sake of time, um, we're gonna we're gonna do one through three, and then we're gonna go to twenty because it gives a it gives a summary of what he's praying. Okay. So chapter nine, verse one. In the first year of Darius, the son of Ahuzaras, which um, of the lineage of the Medes, who was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans. Ahuzaras, I believe, is another. Um, Name for Darius to me, but not sure now. Um, oh, yes, Xerxes, are very good. Thank you. Yes, you're right. Okay. Who was making over the realm of the Chaldeans. In the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, understood by the books the number of the years specified by the word of the Lord through Jeremiah the prophet that he would accomplish 70 years in the desolations of Jerusalem. Then I set my face toward the Lord God to make requests by prayer and supplications with fasting, sackcloth, and ashes. Skipping to verse 20. Now while I was speaking, praying, and confessing my sins and the sin of my people Israel and presenting my supplications before the Lord my God for the holy mountain of my God, Yes, while I was speaking in prayer, the man Gabriel, whom I had seen the vision of the beginning being caused to fly swiftly, reaches me about the time of the evening offering. 
And he informed me and talked with me and said, O oh, Daniel, I have now come forth to give you skill to understand. At the beginning of your supplication, the command went out, and I have come to tell you, for you are greatly beloved. Therefore, consider the matter and understand the vision. Now, there's a lot going on here before we get to the prophecy. Now, Daniel, um, he's praying, and what's he praying? What did you may catch it? What is he praying? What is it? Yes, the end of the exile. Very good. Think about where we're at. We're um, at 538 BC. This is 67 years he's been in Babylon at this point. How long is the exile, according to the prophet Jeremiah, supposed to last? 70 years. So it's 67 years in, and Daniel, he's getting down on his knees, and he's repenting for the nation, realizing that God said this exile is over in three years, and the people can go back to Jerusalem. Think about the faith that took. We know the end of the story, but Daniel... All he has to go on is this, as the weeping prophet Jeremiah, and he said that there's 70 years of captivity. At this point, there's 67. And so Daniel, he's getting down on his knees in faith, and he's not only praying that the exile will come to an end, but he's repenting. Now, we think about Daniel's life. Do we think of Daniel as a guy that needs to repent? Oh. He's lived, he's lived like the best life you can possibly think of. And yet Daniel saw his need and that he fell short of God's perfection and that he saw that his nation fell short of God's perfection. And he's down on his knees and he's confessing his sins and the sins of his nation. When we get down and humble ourselves, even though there's times in our lives when situations come into our lives, I have a situation in my own life, when we think and we know that what we have done is right, and we feel like we have to be right in the situation, it's not the case. We don't have to be right about anything. Our job is to get before the Lord in humility and to confess that we fall short of his perfection and to get down on our knees and pray and ask for repentance for the sins, not only of our own sins, but the sins of our nation. In the midst of this, Daniel is going to get an incredible blessing. And I think Daniel understood this level of humility. And Jesus actually gives us a picture of it too in the gospels. Um, and it took the disciples a while to get there, but it, at the end of Jesus' ministry, he said this. And this is a, a phrase that comes back to me over and over and over again. He said, up to this point, I've called you my servants, but now I call you my friends. And when we get down on our, our knees in prayer and humble ourselves before God and listen to what he has to say, I'm going to tell you this, that God will tell, won't tell his servants his secrets, but he will tell his friends his secrets. You know, there's a place of coming to God where, yeah, we can come to God and he's going to do the work, the free gift of salvation. But when we abide with God in the secret place, abide with God in prayer, he's going to start to tell you some some stuff that um, he might not have told you otherwise. Because 
we're not only having that relationship of, yeah, I'm saved. Um, I want to work for God, but we're having that intimate, intimate relationship. Like when you lay in bed at night with your spouse and you talk about the things you don't talk to anybody else about. That's where the level and the depth of prayer that Daniel's in. And God's going to give him an answer that he wasn't actually asking for, but it's a lot better answer than he could have possibly imagined. All right. I'm just going to skip a little bit. All right. The other thing that's going on here is Darius, um, who is the lineage of the Medes, was made king. And we know from history that he wasn't the main king. The main king was named Cyrus this time, or Cyrus the Great. What's significant about Cyrus? Isaiah chapter 45, this is 150 years prior, says that Cyrus would rise up, 150 years before this, says Cyrus will rise up and be the Lord's anointed. And Cyrus would be the one to end the exile. So this is actually prophesied before the exile even happens. So Isaiah is saying, when you go into exile, there's going to be this guy named Cyrus who's going to raise up, and he's going to be the one that's going to end the captivity. So Cyrus is king as well. So Daniel's also got this in mind. that Isaiah said that Cyrus is going to rise up. Let's skip all that. And that. All right. Let's pick it up in verse 24. And while you're turning there, I think one last point, you know, about prayer. I love, this might be my favorite verse in all of Daniel and one of my favorite chapters next to my other favorite chapters. And it says, I have come to tell you, you are greatly beloved. Therefore, consider the matter. Can you imagine an angel coming to tell you how much God loves you? I'm going to tell you that God does love you. He loves you with the son as a son and daughter, but you are highly esteemed. The one says you're highly esteemed. I believe that's because of Daniel's prayer life. You know, and God's going to tell him some great secrets here. So anyway, here we go. Verse 24. 70 weeks are determined for your people and for your holy city to finish the transgression, to make an end to sins, to make reconciliation for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision of prophecy, and to anoint the most holy. All right, so 70 weeks. It's 70 weeks of years. If you have 70 weeks of years, how many years is that? How many? 490. 490, very good. And in 490 years, we're gonna what? Finish transgression. Did that happen? Yes, on the cross, right? So, yeah, we're going to finish it. Gosh, excuse me. Make an end of sins. Is the sin problem taken care of? Yes, Jesus took care of that. We're going to make reconciliation for iniquity. Did Jesus do that? Yes, he did. Uh, we're going to bring in everlasting righteousness. Jesus has become our righteousness. Very good. To seal up vision and prophecy. Has that happened yet? No, has not. We're going to talk about that in a minute. And to anoint the most holy. Yes, we've anointed the most holy. Um, we also have a second coming coming. So, verse 25. 
Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there shall be seven weeks and 62 weeks. The street shall be built again and the wall even in troublesome times. And after the 62 weeks, Messiah shall be cut off, but not for himself. So Messiah cut off is killed, right? Okay. But he won't do it for himself. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. The end of it shall be with a flood until the end of the war. Desolations are determined. Then he shall confirm a covenant with many for one week. But in the middle of the week, he shall bring an end to sacrifice and offering. And the wing of the abomination shall be, be, be one who makes desolate even until the consummation, which is determined, is poured out on the desolate. All right, so there's a lot going on here too. So first we have a, um, a starting point. What's the starting point of the 490 years? What's the scripture say? Verse, no, it's not when they leave Babylon. Verse 25. Their captivity, when the captivity starts, isn't it? No. It says, know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the command or the decree to restore and build Jerusalem. So we're looking for a, a decree, right? And the decree is to do what? Restore and rebuild Jerusalem. All right. So let's ask ourselves, what decree? Oh, I'm using my old slides. I put these things in here. Okay. Let's look at Ezra chapter 1, verse 1 through 4. Yep, you're getting closer. And like I said before, I don't know the books of the Bible in order. So I just kind of flip through until I find it. <laughs> I got to learn that one of these days. I think they tried to teach us in Sunday school and it just didn't click. I think that's the... I'm trying finding it. Yeah, I bet. That'd be tartar. Ezra 1, 1 through 4. It says, Now in the first year of Cyrus, right king, for going back to Jerusalem, so that's good, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled. The Lord struck the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia. So he made a proclamation through all of his kingdom and also put in writing, saying, Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, all the kingdoms of the earth, the Lord God of heaven has given me, and he has commanded me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. So what's he commanding him to do? Build a temple in Jer Jerusalem. Does that fulfill the, the decree to restore or rebuild Jerusalem? It doesn't, does it? It's a decree to build the temple. So does that work as our starting point? It does not. So we're gonna go on. Let's go to Ezra 6. Um, then King Darius issued a decree. A search was made in the archives where the treasures were stored in Babylon and somebody's name in the palace that is in the province at Media. A scroll was found at record, and its record was written thus. In the first year of King Cyrus, King Cyrus issued a decree concerning the house of God at Jerusalem. Let the house be rebuilt, the place where they are offered sacrifices, and let the foundations of it firmly be laid, and its height 60 cubits, and its width 60 cubits. And it gives the, the dimensions for the temple, because the temple didn't get rebuilt in the first decree. So this is another decree to rebuild the... Does it work? No, does not. 
so. Let's go to the next one. Let's go to Nehemiah chapter 2, uh, verse 1. And it came to pass in the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was before him, that I took the wine and gave it to the king. Now I had never been sad in his presence before. Therefore the king said to me, Why is your face sad since you are not sick? This is nothing but sorrow of heart. So I became dreadfully afraid and said to the king, May the king live forever. Why should my face not be sad when the city... The place of my father's tombs lies waste, and its gates are burned with fire. Then the king said to me, What do you request? So I prayed to the God of heaven, and I said to the king, If it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in your sight, I ask that you send me to Judah, to the city of my father's tombs, that I may rebuild it. Then the king said to me, the queen also sitting beside him, How long will your journey be, and when will you return? So it pleased the king to send me, and I sent him a time. Furthermore, I said to the king, If it pleases the king, let letters be given to me for the governors of the region beyond the river, that they must permit me to pass through till I come to Judah. And a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he must give me timber to make beams for the gates of the citadel, which pertains to the temple for the city wall and for the house that I will occupy. And the king granted them to me, <laughs> according to the good hand of God upon me. Then I went to the governors in the region beyond the river and gave them the king's letter. Now the king had sent captains of the army and horsemen with me. So does this fulfill the decree? The decree was to rebuild the city. So Nehemiah chapter 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 2 gives us the decree to restore and rebuild the city. Now it's really nice. It gives us a date too, doesn't it? And we can actually give us, we can actually give that date in our in our dating system as we most believe it is March 14th, 445. Some say 444. I I kind of lean towards the 445 date because when they look at the reigns of the kings, they never counted the year of ascension. So the first year is like year zero. So 445 seems to work better than 444, but it still works. Um, with the with the dating system either way you do it so we're going to use 445 so from 445 bc until the anointed one comes there will be seven sevens how many is seven sevens 49 years and most commentators will say the 49 years is how long it took to completely rebuild the city we know from nehemiah it took 52 days to rebuild the wall which is a miracle in itself. Okay? So they say about 49 years to rebuild a city, and they think that that's what it's referring to, um, possibly. We don't know for sure. Then it says, then there will be 62 sevens. I hate all this math. And Christ will present, he presented on a donkey. So 62 sevens until the anointed comes and is cut off. Right? So if we add... 7 times 7 plus 62 times 7 for Kendall, who's our math person. How many years is that? Oh, I use the the calculator. (laughs) 483 years from the issuing of the decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah comes and presented as king. So from the time till he gets presented on a donkey. Now, 
it takes some figuring to do this. And I, and I struggle with this method a little bit because I feel like it breaks some rules. And I'm not saying this is correct, but I find this very, very interesting because it works out perfect. So let's look at it just because I think it's worth looking at. All right. So if we have 483 prophetic years, how many days are in a prophetic year? 360. Okay. So if we have 483 prophetic years times 360 days, it equals 173,880 days from the issuing of the decree to when Messiah is presented as king. Now, if we have a prophetic year and we need to adjust the calendar, which they actually do adjust their calendar, so I guess you can use it this way. If you have 360 days in a prophetic year divided by 365 and a quarter with actual solar days, and it comes out to like 0.98, somewhere around there, so it's like 0.98% of a year, multiply it by 483, it'll give us 476.0575 solar years, all right? So if we take 476.0575 solar years times 365.25 um, actual days, it actually brings us back to 173,880 days, okay? So see how that worked. Now, there's a lot more to this that I'm giving you. Uh, if you want to do the commentary, I can actually give it to you if you want it. Um, they went and they they figured it out in terms of history, the, the actual dating, and they, they did the research with the moons and when they would fall to figure out when Passover would fall. And um, we actually uh, figured out a time period. And we came up for, um, for the time that Jesus would be presented on a donkey would be April 6, AD 32. Or if you go with the 444 day, it would be March 30th, 33. Actually, the, the interval is the same at work still. And if that method is correct, it actually would put Jesus that week before Passover when he was presented as king right to the day. So pretty interesting, I think. God's pretty precise. Yeah. So the day he rode in on the donkey would be March 14th? Or, or. Yes. Or if we go, if we do our terminus quo or our, our starting point at, at 444, um, the, the, the interval is the same. Okay. And it would put it, because Passover doesn't fall the same day every year. Yeah. So the interval is the same. I lean more towards 32 myself or even 31 for some other reasons. I'm not going to get into that, but the interval still would be the same. Um, and this is, this is the traditional method of, of interpreting it the way I just gave you. Okay. Any questions on that so far? All right. Anybody find that amazing? This was given like in the 530s BC, this prophecy. So... All right. So after the 483 years, the time when Messiah is cut off, we have, think of it, think of this prophecy as like a stopwatch. So you push the stop button. All right. How many years are left? Seven. seven. What does seven correspond to? It's perfect number. You're thinking Ramez. Good job. Biblical numerology. What is it? Other? 
Purification, good. How about Revelation? Tribulation period. Yep. And it says that in the tribulation, in this period, that we're going to seal up vision and prophecy. When's vision and prophecy sealed up? Or in tribulation, right? It ends it. It comes to the point where Jesus wins. In the very end of all time, like the only of the first session, Jesus wins. So this prophecy, Daniel's praying about, hey, it's 67 years. Um, it's time to go back to Jerusalem. And God's saying, I'm going to give you a little bit more of an answer than that. Yeah, you're going to go back. And they did in a couple of years. It did happen. Cyrus sent him back. But God said, you know what, Daniel, you're my friend. I, I love how you abide with me daily, no matter what comes your way. And I want to reveal something to you that is amazing. And so Daniel, in his prayer life on his knees, was given the whole history of the world to come all the way to Jesus' reign on his knees. All right. How much of this? I'm skipping a lot. What was it that you talked to me earlier about that I said I'd come back to? I forgot. They're having visions and about Oh, yes. Okay. I'll, I, I want to talk about that. I, I, I can't, I can, I'm going to try to fit that in. So it says in verse 26, And after the 62 weeks, Messiah shall be cut off, but not for himself. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and his sanctuary. I think this is actually really interesting because the people of the prince who is to come, so the people of the Antichrist shall destroy the city. Who destroyed the city? 70 AD? Romans under Titus. And you know what's interesting to me is that one of the main legions that did did the destruction was Legion 10. And Legion 10... Was the, was the Arab people of today, the people that are the enemies of Israel even to this day. And I wonder sometimes, and I don't know if this is right or wrong, I've heard a lot of teaching either way, if the Antichrist to come will come out of the Muslim nations, if he maybe will be what the, the Muslims call the Mahdi, I don't know. Um, I, see, I see a lot of a lot of uh, correlation. The Muslims themselves, they have a prophecy that the white horse in in, uh, Revelation, not the one where Jesus is riding the other one, the Baton Destruction, they say that's their Messiah. Then it will be the Mahdi. So what are we going to do with that? I don't know. I think it's possible. And I think it's interesting when it talks about the Antichrist will come out of the one, the people that destroyed the city. And we're talking Legion 10. Because Legion 10 is those people where we would expect the Mahdi to come from. I just find that interesting. Am I saying that's right? That that's the way it's to be? No, I'm not saying that. It's just one of those things, side notes, like, that's kind of interesting. So I tucked that one away. And um, it says, the end of it shall be with the end of it shall be with a flood until the end of the war. Desolations are determined. Then he shall confirm a covenant with many for one week. But in the middle of the week, he shall bring an end to sacrifice and offering. And the wing of the abomination shall be one who makes desolate. 
even until the consummation, which is determined, is poured out and on the desolate. So he's giving us a description of that last week. The same description that John gives us in Revelation, that there's going to be a seven-year tribulation in the middle of that tribulation, just like when Antiochus IV was king of, uh, of the Grecian kingdom, of the Seleucid kingdom of Greece, there will be a desolation of the altar again in the middle of that week. And What's that? Jesus talk about it, yes, Matthew 24, Jesus says, the abomination of desolation prophesied to the, the prophet Daniel. And that actually comes from Daniel chapter 12, um, is the abomination of desolation that Jesus is speaking of. But we didn't get to 12 this week. All right. We still want to talk about visions of Jesus. Well, I'm, I'm going to use it as a side note because I kind of missed where I wanted to talk about it. But I just want to just wrap this up. Are there any questions on anything we've covered today or this week? Clear as mud? I, I got like three minutes. All right. All right. Visions of Jesus. You know, I wanted actually wanted to talk about that when I was talking about like uh, Alexander the Great's vision in Antiochus' um, crying out to God in a way that was not the best. In the Muslim world today, I actually visited Jesus, Egypt. I was there for three weeks, I think, um, back in 2003. In part of that trip, we uh, visited a church. And they said, for this visit, we're going to take you up in the steeple into a room. We know it's not bugged. And we're going we're gonna to tell you about some stuff. And uh, so we... Uh, we were up in the steeple of this of this church in Egypt in a room they knew would not be infiltrated by the government. And um, they they began to tell us of the stories of the people that they have, in their words, almost have to deal with because they're having so many Muslims seeing visions of Christ and visions of the night and are actually coming to the church and saying, I saw Jesus. He revealed himself to me in the night. And now, <clears throat> excuse me, I want to be a Christian. And the church isn't, doesn't sure, isn't sure what to do because in Egypt, and I'm assuming it's still the same, this is back in 2003, um, it's illegal to convert. When you're born, you're given an identity card. It'll say Christian or Muslim. If you're a Christian, you can convert to Islam. But if you're a Muslim, it is illegal to convert to Christianity. So these people are coming with these visions of Christ in the night and they don't know what to do with them. They're like, we believe in Jesus now. And the church is like, um, we can't bring you in because you might be a spy and bring the people that are in our church into great persecution. And yet they're going to their families and sharing Christ and they're being thrown out of their families. They're losing their jobs and they're becoming being put into a place of they can't really be part of the church proper and they also are completely thrown out of their families and their social lives as well but we that's just egypt and then we we hear of it all across iran iraq it's happening all across the middle east um yes we are the light of the world our commission is to be jesus to the world like daniel was was um, the, the face of, of God to Nebuchadnezzar. But Jesus is out there doing his own work too. <laughs> and he's showing up to people in the middle of the night in visions. And um, 
I did have the privilege to talk to Christians that are right in the middle of that, and it's really an amazing, amazing thing going on. Anything else? All right, so we have like two minutes left, and I want to do this one thing. I want to just do um, a time of prayer. Um, and I just want you to ask the Holy Spirit what he's saying. And I want to take a few minutes just to repent for the sins of our nations, for our nation, and ask God to bring, in, bring us into a new revival and to change our hearts. And um, I believe that this is the spirit of repentance, renewal, prayer is the key to the nations. It's the key to have what Daniel had. So let's just pray. Father, thank you for the book of Daniel. Thank you for the example that Daniel has given us of repentance, God. God, right now, I confess the sins of our nation, confess the fornication. God, confess the, the, just the, the homosexuality, the abortions. We confess the sins of um, um, adultery, of lust, of fornication, of all these things that are in our nation. God, we just come and we just bow before you we get how we say we're sorry for the sins of our nations. God, we're sorry, Lord, that as a church, we haven't, we haven't risen up in certain times and been the light that you've called us to be. God, I just ask that you would give us a heart to, for people to love people because you're in them enough to stand up and to take a stand for you that is honorable and respectful but God, that is a hard line stand that we will not bend. God, let our hearts be so bent towards you that to go the other way just doesn't work. God, I pray that prayer this morning. Oh, Lord, bend me. Lord, 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 bend me, oh, Lord, bend me, bend me, bend me. Bend me to my knees of prayer to you. God, I am so sorry for the times that, that I have not listened to you, that I've shrugged you off when I've heard, your, heard, heard that, that whisper in my heart. God, I pray, Lord, that from this day forward, God, that I would be so bent in your direction that whatever you tell me to do, wherever you lead me, God, I'd be bent in that direction. God, I want to be not just a servant of God. I want to be your friend. God, I want to hear the intimate secrets of your heart. God, I pray, Lord, for these, these people that are gathered here. God, Lord, that their heart would be so bent towards you. God, that they would seek to you and abide with you all the days of your life. And I just want to close with this. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine on you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance on you and give you the complete infilling filling of shalom. And may you be filled with the Holy Spirit, the spirit of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, 
faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against these things, no one can make a law. May these be yours in increasing measure. And may you go out and fulfill the commission of Jesus Christ to lay hands on the sick and to see them recover, to be a light to the world, to raise the dead, (laughs) to speak in new tongues, and to cast out demons. And may everywhere you go, may the enemy flee because the Spirit of God is on your life, just like it was on the life of Daniel. I bless you in these things, and I speak these things over you in absolute faith that you will be warriors for the kingdom. May you abide with him all the days of your life. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you, son. Have you appreciated this this week?